So next week we're going to go into an Advent series. Um, so we're going to spend four weeks looking at uh, Jesus uh, becoming, uh, God becoming a human, but being in the person of Jesus. And we're going to be doing that from Colossians 1. Uh, so if during this next week you want to open up the Bible at some point, um, then you could, you could do really well just by reading. It's only a short passage. We're going to be looking at it over the next four weeks. Colossians 1 verse uh, 15 down to something, the end of the chapter, I think. Um, but uh, anyway, so that's where we're going to be. So if you want to read that during the week, that'll help prep you for the next uh, the next few weeks now as i uh, last week last sunday was uh, the beginning of the time of year where i start to feel christmasy that's what happened last week on sunday and the reason that happened last week was because last week was our first practice for the christmas sing-along uh, and there is nothing you just can't help but feel christmasy when you're uh, singing and playing like it'll be lonely this christmas and you know o- other such christmas classics so so as I was playing that last week, it was just impossible for me not to begin feeling Christmassy. And the problem is that then I spent, then I spent all week just like singing Christmas songs, like just over and over in my head. And so that's it. From now until Christmas, I will be singing Christmas songs. That, that's what will be going on. But I've noticed that I'm not the only person who's beginning to feel Christmassy. There are a number of Christmas outfits knocking around uh, today, I've noticed. So some people wearing Christmas tops, Christmas dresses. Uh, I've, I know that uh, apparently Amber's already got a Christmas tree up, which is entirely unacceptable. Um, uh, but, but, you know, she, she's done it and she's gone that way and she'll have to live with the consequences uh, of that decision. So, um, so, so yeah, people are beginning to, to feel Christmassy. Now, I don't know how you get it, how you get in the Christmas spirit. Lots of people do it by uh, watching Christmas films. I don't know how they do it because as far as I can work out, there's only two or three Christmas films that are worth watching. But some people see, I mean, there's entire channels that are just devoted to it. So there must be more that I've just missed. But one of, one of the uh, Christmas films that I watch every year is A Muppet Christmas Carol. Um, My Muppet Christmas Carol is the greatest Christmas film uh, ever made. Uh, And so every year, ideally on Christmas Eve itself, I will will sit down and watch uh, A Muppet Christmas Carol. Um, And and you can always tell whether someone is kind of of high culture or low culture by how they think that A Muppet Christmas Carol starts. Because I think A Muppet Christmas Carol starts with the Marleys were dead to begin with. But people who are high culture, they know that actually there was only one Marley in the book and it is Marley was dead to begin with. Um, I'm like, what do you mean there was only one? How could you then get like Waldorf and Statler to play it if there's only one of them? But no, Marley was dead to begin with. It's one of the, it was one of the great beginning lines uh, to, to a book. Um, and actually, it goes on to say this. It says, there is no doubt that Marley was dead. This must be distinctly understood or nothing wonderful can come of the story I'm going to relate. You see, what the, the story begins by saying, before this story starts, there's a backstory you need to understand. And that backstory is that Marley was dead to begin with. It kind of sets the scene for everything that's going to, going to follow. If you don't know that, if you don't understand that he's dead, then the whole story of A Christmas Carol makes, makes no sense to you. Now, now, the passage we're going to look at this week is going to be uh, 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6 down to the end of the chapter. It's on page 1164 on the Bible's knocking around if you want to get it open. 2 Corinthians 9. Um, but before we get into that passage, there is a backstory to this passage that you need to understand. There is, there is similar to a Christmas carol, there are truths which you need to know and you need to understand to make any sense of 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6 to 15. 
We, we could say that there, there is a story which needs to be understood or nothing wonderful can come from this passage we're looking at this week. Okay, so unless we understand the story that lies behind 2 Corinthians 9 verse 6 to, um, to 15, nothing wonderful can come out of us looking at this passage. So let, let, me, let me tell you the backstory. Let, let, me, let me give you the story which enables us to understand and to think about 2 Corinthians 9 verse 6 to, to 15. And it starts like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The story begins with a God who makes a good world. More than a good world, he makes a good universe. And he makes it for his own enjoyment. And he makes it so that the people who he's made in his image can enjoy it as well. In this world, people are going to experience his goodness. They're going to share in his joy. And he is going to share in their joy. That's where the story begins. Now, now that world gets broken, but, but the story continues in that God doesn't give up on it at that point. No, God continues to provide life and beauty and goodness and joy into the world. He continues to sustain the world with his goodness. He continues to watch over the world and shower it with blessings, which is why the world continues to be a place full of beauty. A place where pleasure can be experienced. A place where great deeds can be done and great deeds can be remembered and great deeds can be celebrated and sung about. A place where stories are told, where love can be experienced. The world is a place of great goodness, of great beauty that can be experienced by us because that's the story of the God who decided he was going to continue showering this world with blessings. So alongside the brokenness, which is there, God's goodness is experienced and felt and the world remains a glorious place where people experience the generosity of his maker. That's the world that we live in. But but the story then continues it, go, it goes beyond them because, yes, the world continues to be a place where we can enjoy God's goodness, where we can experience love and pleasure and joy and purpose. But there's still brokenness in all of that. There's still pain and suffering and hurt alongside it. And God looks at that and says, yes, I want the goodness, but I also want the world to be a place without that brokenness. At some point, I want there to be a world where there remains beauty and goodness and kindness and joy and love and pleasure. But there is no more hurt and betrayal and suffering. He wants that brokenness to be reversed. He wants people to know and enjoy him as they were created to. So in one great act of generosity, God says, right, I'm going to come down to earth now and I'm going to sort the mess out. And so God no longer just gives the world his blessings. He no longer showers it with his goodness and his creativity and his joy and all those things. He now blesses the world with himself. He gives himself to the world in the person of his son. And he comes down to the earth. And then physically in the person of Jesus, he continues to shower his blessings on the world. He heals the sick. He raises the dead. 
He offers forgiveness and ultimately he gives his life for them as he dies. And he promises that through that death, everyone is invited back into the family of God. God gives himself so that we can be forgiven, restored and welcomed into his family. Through this, people will finally share in God's joy, in God's purposes and ultimately in the new and perfect creation God is making. That's the backstory. That's the equivalent of the Marleys were dead to begin with. To begin with, God in his goodness created a good world. He showered that good world with his blessings and ultimately he gave himself to that world so that he could assure, uh, um, ensure that in the future there would be a perfect world where we would experience all his goodness. That's the story of the gospel. It's not the whole story. It's a summary. But it's that story which must be distinctly understood or nothing wonderful can come from 2 Corinthians 9 verses 6 to 15. Let let me read this passage to you now. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor, their righteousness endures forever. Now, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that... You can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but it's also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you. Because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. This is a passage which it says at the top of this section, helpfully, is encouraging us to be generous. That's what lies at the heart of this passage. And there is nothing more central to our value about passionate about blessing Hartlepool than generosity. Working to meet the needs that exist in our town, in our communities, in the places where we are, wherever that is, is always going to involve generosity. Generosity with our time as we seek to get alongside neighbours and friends who are hurting. You see, we've got to give time to that. If we want to get alongside the people that we live with, our friends or our neighbours, as they're going through difficult times, that's, that, that's going to require some time from us. We have to be generous with our time to do that. But it might not be that. As we look to love and support our families, that's going to involve time. As we volunteer with Christians Against Poverty or Safe Families or the Food Bank or any of those things we were hearing about earlier, that's going to involve generosity with our time. We can't do it if we're not generous with the time we've got. If we're going to be serious about blessing Hartlepool, then we're going to have to be generous with our money as well. Because we need to resource churches and charities and each other and other organisations to help people 
in our town, whether that's people who are battling with poverty or isolation or mental health issues or loneliness. We're going to have to be generous with our gifts and abilities, you know, the things that we can do. God's equipped each of us to do, be able to do different things. If we're going to be involved in blessing heart, but we need to be generous with those gifts, not simply using those gifts for us to enjoy. Although I think there is great joy to be found in using the gifts that God's given us, but also using those gifts for the good of those around us. Generosity is at the heart of us blessing the people around us. But generosity doesn't start with us. Now, generosity starts with God. You see that again and again in this passage. I don't know if you picked it up as we were looking through it. Let me just pull, pull a few examples of it out for you. Verse 8. In verse 8, it says, God blesses you abundantly that you may abound in every good work. Where does the generosity start? Well, it starts with a God who blesses you abundantly. God is generous towards you. He blesses you abundantly. Great phrase, like not just like a bit of blessing, but abundant kind of overflowing blessing. He blesses you so that you will then abound in every good work. Verse 11, we will be enriched in every way to be generous on every occasion. See what happens? God enriches us. He first blesses us in every way, it says. And that then enables us to be generous in every situation. You see it again and again, verse 14, you see that we're talked about the surpassing grace that God has given them. In verse 15, we're told that God has given us an indescribable gift. This passage is actually more dominated by God's generosity towards us than it is by our generosity towards others. Yes, generosity is encouraged. That's what um, Paul is getting at in this passage. But he wants to do that by reminding us that our generosity flows out of God's generosity towards us. Our generosity is made possible by God's generosity towards us. First, God blesses us abundantly and that results in good works. First, God enriches us and that results in us being generous on every occasion. God gives us his grace. God gives us that indescribable gift. That is always the order. You see, we've just got to make sure we get that right. Generosity is not a condition that we meet in order to make God generous towards us. So it's not, well, what we do is we be generous, and as we're generous, God will be generous towards us. That's basically how people who believe in karma, that's basically what they believe at that point. It's that if I do, if I'm generous, God will be generous to me. It's that kind of trade-off. We do the good thing, so we get good things back. That's not how this works. It's the other way around. We experience God's generosity towards us first, And as we experience more and more of that, we become increasingly generous to others. And and in these few verses, Paul's going to unpack for us why. Like, why is it that experiencing God's generosity makes us generous? And I'm going to suggest, because I'm going to try and keep it uh, as easy as I can, I'm going to suggest four things that Paul is going to tell us that the gospel changes. So four things and I'm even going to flag up each of them. So by the end, hopefully you'll be like, yep, there were four things there. Not I got one and a half of them and then you stop talking about them. Four things um, that the gospel changes that make us more generous. So let's start at the beginning. The gospel changes what we have. Okay, that's the first thing. You see, 
Put simply as I, as, as I can do, we can't be generous with something that we don't have. It's just, it's just not possible. Like, I can't give away money that I don't have. I can't give away time that I don't have. If you don't have something, you can't be generous with that thing. But actually, it runs a bit deeper than that. Because... Actually, it's not just a lack of something. Sometimes it can be a perceived lack of something or or a view that I need a certain amount of something that gets in the way of our generosity. So, for example, if I think I could be generous with that money, but I need that money to make me happy or to make me satisfied or to make me safe, I I could be generous, but I need that money, then I, I won't be generous with it. Same with time. If I think I could give that time away, but I need that time. I need that time for myself, or I need my time for something else, and I won't be generous with it. And, and even if we recognise it's not a need, I guess most of us recognise that our ability to be generous is limited by the impact that being generous would have on our ability to get or enjoy something we want. So, for example, if I'm, if I'm going to be generous with something, I'm going to be less generous if I think that giving that thing away is going to mean I don't get something that I want or I'm not able to do something I enjoy. There's a relationship between what we have and how generous we are. Now, before you think, okay, here, here, here it is. It's the classic church thing, isn't it? Like, out to ruin my life. They just want me to give everything away so that, like, and just me to live this miserable life where I've got no money and no time because I'm just saying, just give it all away because stop clinging on to it for yourself. Before you think that, I just want to say none of that is meant primarily as a criticism because I'm not calling you to some sort of sacrificial or martyr-type approach to generosity because that's not at all what Paul does here. Never does he speak in those kind of terms here. All I'm simply trying to help us see is that there is a relationship between what we have and what we give away. There just is a relationship between those two things. And what you see Paul again and again pulling out this passage is that what, because of the gospel, what we have has changed. So like verse 8, for example, we talked about it before where it talks about God blessing you abundantly so that... In all things at all times, having all that you need, you'll abound in every good work. You see, God gives us stuff. So now we have all that we need. What we have has changed. Before, we didn't have all that we need. But now God has given us all that we need. So what we have has changed. Verse 10 is perhaps the biggest, kind of, the the longest unpacking of this. He's basically saying in verse 10, God gives you the seed for the harvest, it's not, it's not you provide the seed and then God's going to make it grow. Now, that's not what he says here. He says God is going to give you the seed with which you can be generous. It's that, it's that image of like, I'm going out scattering this seed, being really generous, throwing it all out there. But someone else has given me that in the first place. I, I love that phrase. He's going to supply and increase your store of seed. And will enlarge your harvest. See, it's all, it's all about God. God's changed what we have. He's provided us with all that we need to be generous with. 
And so here's where I want us to start. If you are a Christian, if you are somebody who has experienced God's generosity towards you, the reason this overflows in in generosity from you is because you now give from a position of plenty. You now give from a position of plenty. What God has given you is sufficient. God is the one who supplies what we need for generosity. And what he supplies, it is not money so that we can give it away or extra hours in our day. We all still get 24 hours. God doesn't say, right, I'm now going to give you 26 hours so you can give a bit more time away. That's not what he does. No, what he gives us is his inexpressible gift. In the gospel, we receive a welcome into God's family. We receive a promise of a life which stretches beyond this world. We receive a joy in knowing our sins are forgiven. We receive an experience of him and of knowing him through his spirit. And because of this, we're able to be generous. We give from a position of excess. We may not have any more money or any more time than anyone else. But rather, having experienced God's inexpressible gift to us, we're able to be generous because we recognise that even if we give time or money away, we're still at the end of it going to be in a position of plenty. However much money or however much time we give away, we're still at the end of it going to be welcomed into God's family, loved by him, accepted by him, secure in him, looking forward to a future with him. That stuff's unshakable. You see, the gospel changes what we have. We feel so uh, filled with what God has given us that we're able to be generous with things. Now, you might say, well, that's, that's all well and good. We're now in a position where it's easier to be generous because we don't rely on the things that we're giving away in the same way. But the question is, why would we want to? Like, why would we want to give things away? Why would we want to be generous? Here's my second thing. If the first thing the gospel changes is what we have, the second thing it changes is what we value. You see, that's what he says in, um, in verse 10. He talks about the fact that what we sow reaps a harvest. Now, we've got to be, be careful here because this is not where you be generous with your money. And then God will bless you with more money in exchange. There's plenty of people who've told that story, who've said that's the way that this works. And there's plenty of churches that have been built around that kind of idea. But that's not what Paul is talking about here at all. It's not uh, you give money, God's going to bless you with more money. Because what we reap and what we sow are not the same thing. So yes, we will be generous and we will reap a harvest, but that's not saying that we're going to reap back what we give. We reap two things, I think, from this. Look at me uh, me at verse 12. Here's the two things that we reap from our generosity. One, we reap the harvest of being able to supply the needs of others. And two, we reap the harvest of thanks being given to God. That's what Paul says in verse 12. As we are generous... We are able to supply the needs of others and we're able to, um, to create a space where God is given more thanks. If we are generous, say if we're generous with our money, we have less money. But that's just how it works. Okay, if you give some money away, you have less money than if you didn't give some money away. If you give all time away, you have less time than you would have had if you didn't give it away. That's how generosity works. 
But we reap more meeting others' needs and we reap more thanks and praise given to God. And what the gospel does is it makes us want and value those things more highly than the things we're giving away. That's what the gospel changes. It changes what we value. You see, nobody, nobody reaps something of greater value. No, no one sows something of greater value in order to reap something of lesser value. That like, is just not how it works, is it? If I plant a seed, I'm like way out of my depth now because we're talking about <laughs> planting seeds and I know nothing about planting seeds. But if I plant a seed, at the end of it, I'm hoping I get a plant which is of greater value than the seed that I planted and probably creates more seeds. I think that's how nature works. Um, and so, so if you plant something, you're hoping that the thing that you reap at the end of it is of greater value than the thing that you planted. It's exactly the same here. We sow something less valuable in order to reap something more valuable. That's how generosity works. Because the gospel changes what we value. It changes what we want. We're generous because we want to bless other people more than we want the stuff that we're being generous with. We're generous because we're more committed to seeing God thanked than we are to holding on to what we've got. We're able to be generous because we believe that the harvest we'll reap of supplying others' needs and bringing thanks to God is of more value than the things that we're generous with. You see, having received immeasurable blessings from God, how could we not want God to be receiving praise and thanks for his generosity? Having experienced God meeting our needs, how could we not want to be involved in God's work of meeting other people's needs? The gospel changes what we have, so we give from a position of plenty, knowing that we are secure, welcomed in his family, accepted with a perfect um, home awaiting us that can never be taken away and never given away. And it changes what we value. We value meeting others' needs and praise being given to God more than we value money, time or whatever it is that we're giving away. I don't know, I don't know kind of how you, how you kind of do generosity in your life. I don't know, like, what does it look like for you to be generous? What is it that you think, this is what God's blessed me with, and this is, these are the things that I can give away? Maybe it's uh, money, maybe it's time, maybe you have a, a routine of how you do that, maybe you do it more reactively. One of the things that I think can be really hard with, with being involved in you know, blessing Harlepool and meeting needs. It's trying to work out if you're making any difference. I was, I was chatting to my mum a bit about this this morning. You know, as you're involved in people's lives, as you're trying to get alongside people, maybe it's with friends, maybe it's with, say, families, maybe it's down the food bank. It's easy to think, is what I'm doing actually making any difference to these people's lives? You know, it seems like we have the same conversation over and over again. I'm trying to be a good friend to this person, but it seems like nothing I do makes any difference. Or, ah, I'm trying to um, help uh, alleviate food poverty in the the town, but it seems like people just keep coming back to the food bank and there's never really any solution. I'm just like sticking a plaster on something that's just going to not solve the problem. Maybe it's as you walk past the homeless person in, in Hartlepool and you walk past them and you think, you give them some money, but they're still there the next day and the next day and the next day and you're there thinking, what, what can I actually do that would make a difference to this situation? You see, that's, that's one of the things that can get in the way of generosity is we think, am I actually making any progress? Is my sacrifice doing anything? 
Sometimes it, it looks like the need is just too great. Nothing I do could make a difference, so why bother? Is there any point in me trying, given that anything I would do would just be tokenistic? You see, sometimes you can see the need around you and you can think either that that would be impossible for me to do anything about, or you could think, actually, it's just impossible, full stop. No one's going to be able to solve that problem. Here's the third thing that gospel changes. The gospel changes what we think is possible. So if the gospel changes what we have and it changes what we value, it also changes what we think is possible. Look at verse 10. God will supply the seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. What is Paul saying in that? He's saying your generosity will reap a harvest. There will be a harvest from it. None of us reap with no harvest anymore. Now, what that harvest will be, maybe we can't call. It may be that the harvest that that reaps is bringing some comfort and joy and peace into someone's life. It might be that we're involved in, uh, in bringing them to know the God who made them. It may be that the harvest we reap from that is our continued growth and dependence on God. It may be that it develops our own heart, our satisfaction, our experience of God. But the gospel encourages us that even if it seems wasted, it is not wasted. You see, without the hope of the gospel, it's just so easy to despair. Is my generosity actually doing anything? Is there any point to it? Am I simply papering over cracks? Is anything I do making any sort of difference? But the gospel transforms this because the gospel promises that one day this world will be renewed and all the brokenness will be reversed. And therefore there is hope for the world. There is hope for poverty and brokenness and pain. We can have confidence that God will use our generosity for his transforming work in our lives, in the lives of those around us and in our world. Why does the gospel, this great good news of a generous God, why does that drive us to generosity? Because it changes what we have and it changes what we value and it changes what we think is possible. And finally, it changes where we look for joy. I don't know how you feel about generosity. I start, we were chatting about this uh, at the beginning of the week. Uh, me, Amy and Iona, as we were chatting about this passage together. We were, we were, we were chatting about this and I was, I was asking the question, do most people think that they're generous? Like, I wonder if you're sat there today. I'd look, I've, I literally have no idea. We chatted about it. We, we came up with nothing. I was like, I've got literally no idea how most people view, view themselves. Like, are most of us sat here thinking, I'm a generous person? Or are most of us sat here thinking, oh, I'm not that good at that? Another question I had is, do most people sit here thinking, oh, I'd really love to be more generous? Or do most people sit here thinking, mm, I'm not really sure I'm up for that? Again, I've got nothing. I've got no idea. So we're just going to we're just gonna have to wait and see kind of how you land with it. But, but what it did make me think is probably all of us are quite divided about generosity internally. There's probably a bit of all of us that's like, oh, man, I love that feeling when I've been able to like give something away to someone. I've been able to help someone. I've been able to gener generously give something that I've been given. There's a bit of us that like loves that feeling. But probably alongside that, we, we probably sometimes have a sense of entitlement or, or a desire to take things. We feel that we have a right to something. We don't want to give it away. 
We feel like we've earned something. I've earned that, so why should I give that to someone else? They didn't earn it. And so we're kind of divided. We have like some sort of positive feelings toward generosity, but we also at times find it really difficult. We want the thing we're being generous with and being generous would result in us having less of that thing. So we don't really want that. And at the heart of that, at the heart of that divided heart that all of us, I think, have when it comes to generosity is the big question of where is it that you find joy? Where do you find joy in your life? What is it? that makes you enjoy the life that you've been given? What is it that gives you that sense of satisfaction in your life? You see, because whatever you're going to answer that question with, that's what you're going to pursue. And so we land at verse 7, because we've gone in some sort of order. I'm not quite sure what it is. But anyway, we've landed on the second verse. That's where we're going. Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly, under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. The gospel changes what makes you cheerful. The gospel changes where you find joy. The gospel teaches us to find joy in knowing God as our father, in becoming more like him. As he finds joy in giving, we too find joy in giving. We are cheerful givers, not because we're told to be, because, but because we genuinely find joy in being generous. That's what the gospel changes. It changes where you find joy. God finds joy in being a generous God. As we enjoy his generosity, we become more like him. So we increasingly find joy in being generous. Jesus said these words that I come back to again and again. He, he said that it's more blessed to give than to receive. And many of you will have heard me talk about this before. But the thing I often think about this is when Jesus said that, we, we, we tend to hear it as a bit of advice. You know, oh yeah, giving's a good thing. That's what we think he's saying there. We, we hear it like a proverb, you know, like a little wise saying. Oh, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And we say it to our kids at Christmas so that they kind of concentrate a bit more on giving people things and not all, on all the stuff they want. Like that's how we hear it. But what if actually when Jesus was saying that, it wasn't so much a proverb as a description of the way the world is wired. God, the great giving God, has wired the world in such a way that it is actually more blessed to give than to receive. It's not a bit of advice. It's not a bit of, oh yeah, you should probably do a bit of that. It's just, it's a statement of fact about how the world's made. Like gravity. What if it's more like gravity than a proverb? You know, gravity just is. It's the way the world is can't help but function in that way i mean unless science tells me that it isn't at some point but you know like that's that's how it works what if it's like that what if god because he is a giving god has made the world function in such a way that is actually more blessed to give than to receive it's just a law of nature you see how does the gospel interact with generosity well it must make us generous people because it changes what we have and it changes what we value and it changes what we think is possible and it changes where we find joy or put another way the gospel brings around about generosity because in the gospel we find blessing transformation hope and joy and that can't help but create generous people I'm going to wrap it up here. What, what does that mean for Grace Church? What does that mean for you? What does that mean for us as a church? If this is about our values and we're saying we want to be passionate about blessing hard people, we want to be generous people, this is what I think it means. We will be 
a generous church for as long as we experience and dwell upon and are transformed by the generous generosity of God. We will be a generous church if we just allow ourselves to revel in and enjoy God's generosity towards us. If we want to be passionate about blessing Hartlepool, we first have to enjoy God's generosity to us. We have to go back to that story that we started with of our generous God who created a world and pours blessings again and again on it. If we dwell there, if we spend our time there, that will overflow in generosity. Some of, some of you here today, you just need to experience God's generosity in your life. Some of you uh, here may not be generous people. You may, you may not even want to be generous people. The, the key to that is not to come up with a plan. It's to experience God's generosity towards you, to know him, to receive that inexpressible gift and to enjoy become more like him. That, that's where some of us need to go today. We need to accept God's generosity towards us. Some of us know that. We, we can look at how God has been generous towards us. We've experienced something of that. And now what we need to do is we need to, we need to take God at his word. We need to go, I'm actually going to believe that it's more blessed to give than to receive. And as we do that, as we do that in the little things with our money or our time or our abilities or whatever it is God's given us, what we're able to do is we begin to taste and see that God is good. That actually, that is the reality. Some of us just need to practice generosity. We need to start doing a bit of it and to see the truth of Jesus' words. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Let me pray for us. Father God, I thank you that you are a God who is consistently and constantly generous. The creation of the world was an act of generosity. Your ongoing sustaining of the world and pouring out of blessings on it is an act of generosity. Your giving of yourself in the person of Jesus is an act of generosity. Your giving of your spirit to continue to transform us is an act of generosity. The way you continue to draw close to us and help us to experience your love and your joy and your work in our lives is an act of generosity towards us. And Father God, I just pray for us as Grace Church. I pray that we would know your generosity and that would overflow in our generosity to others. Look, God, I pray that we would be a church that blesses Hartlepool because we're a church that knows your blessing towards us. Amen.